a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. In 2010, most Duke University students spend their precious free time lounging on the quad or making iPod playlists of illegally downloaded music. But unlike her peers, when freshman Emma Friedel has a break from her biology or Chinese coursework, she goes to the library. Emma has a unique independent study. She's obsessed with killers. Anytime a cold-blooded criminal comes up in conversation or on TV, her curiosity is piqued. Like when she's watching TV and a Seinfeld rerun comes on. Here's my collateral. So it's a mailbag, so what? So what? Do you know whose mailbag that is? David Berkowitz. Son of Sam. The worst mass murderer the post office ever produced. Who's the son of Sam? And what makes someone become a mass murderer? She would think to herself as she beelines for the medieval Duke Library. Under the vaulted ceilings, she searches for insights in academic journals and court documents. The why of homicide fascinates her. While her parents fret that her passion could put her in danger, like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs, her peers are all for it. Duke didn't offer classes on serial killers, so in her junior year, Emma designs her own. She teaches to 20-odd classmates the popular elective, serial psychology, from Dahmer to Dexter. Together, they unpack the demographics and trends around serial killers with a special segment dedicated to them fatales, who Emma felt were underrepresented. She ends up teaching the class three semesters in a row, even though she's not getting any student credit for it. Now, as faculty in the criminology department at Florida State, she has time to investigate. Why do people kill? And more interestingly, why do women kill? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey folks, today we're doing something a little different than our usual fare. Uh, Every so often, instead of telling you all a story of another gruesome crime, we're going to bring on some thought-provoking experts who actually study crime. And I'm so excited for our first of these special episodes. We've invited Professor Emma Friedel to discuss something very near and dear to our hearts. Female killers. Emma. Do you see our faces? We're so excited. We're so excited. (laughs) It's nice to meet you guys. It's It's so nice to meet you. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Carrie, you want to take it away, Toots? Let's take it away. Let's thanks. Quinn, thanks for calling me toots. You know how much I love that. Okay, so Emma, (laughs) we hear that you're a true crime fan. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think all criminologists probably are, right? Because criminology is 
true crime. I feel like we're so kind of definitely. Listen, I think what's really great is between the three of us, we've all sort of made a career out of true crime, which kind of rules. So I'm curious, why do you think women love true crime so much? So I haven't seen the numbers. I, I could see that being true. Like they have like SNL parodies of that, right? Um, <laughs> I, I think part of it is um, related to disciplines. Uh, women have been disproportionately attracted to the social sciences, particularly like psychology, over the past several decades. So if you go to a sociology, a criminology, a psychology classroom in today's universities, you're going to see disproportionately more women there than in other uh, majors. But I think it goes back to women can imagine themselves much more, uh, particularly in these sort of more infamous cases that involve usually violence against women, uh, where the, the woman is the victim, they can imagine themselves in, in a very personal way as a victim. Whereas for men invested in true crime, you're probably going to have to imagine yourself as the offender in a lot of cases, which is uncomfortable. And for men who have a, a strong interest in true crime, it can come off very creepy. So I think lots of men are interested in true crime, but they might not be as willing to state that. In one of my first conversations with my, my dissertation chair, my mentor, he mentioned that he was sort of glad that I was a woman because it made, it made the likelihood that I was just looking for tips on how to commit murder much less likely. <laughs> And that he had many male students in his classes and undergraduate students that would ask questions and were very passionate about true crime, but that were very creepy and made him wonder. Oh. And that doesn't happen as much with women. So oh. it, it may be that men and women are equally interested in true crime and women feel more able to share that interest than men. But this is all conjecture. I don't have actual statistics on it. I know. We're talking to an academic who wants statistics and you want proof. I love, I love that explanation. I mean, I think... I think probably people often ask you that question. They ask me that question. I know they ask Quinn that question of like, why why do you like true crime so much? You know, what's wrong with you? They say. <laughs> they yes. say, what mm -hmm. the hell is wrong with you? Get a life. And they're like, please leave our dinner party. This is making everyone uncomfortable. There's a three year old next to you. Stop talking about murder. My children are here. <laughs> they say. My fiance often has to kind of nudge me and be like, time and place. You got the time and place for this. <laughs> Especially because, you know, gallows humor, I like to make jokes, and then some of the jokes can be pretty, you know, you're like, oh, I shouldn't say this in polite company. <laughs> Emma, we are not polite company. You can say anything here. Sit, sit, next, to sit next to sit us. Next sit to next to us, us at the party. dinner party. We're all for I'll it. I'll have yeah. a casserole. We're all for it. I also think with true crime, you know, because it's so dark, you kind of have to giggle. You have to take those opportunities to laugh and smile because otherwise it's really dark. Yeah, I always tell my students, I'm never making fun of the victims, I'm making fun of the offenders, and I'm okay with that when they've done some of the worst things that you can do to another human being. So I'd like to pivot a little. How did you end up turning towards female perpetrators? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, female offending has long been kind of, in the academic community, been kind of thrown by the wayside because... Most criminals, generally speaking, regardless of the type of crime, but even more so for homicide and things like serial killing, are very gendered, right? Uh, most uh, offenders tend to be male, right? So for decades, a lot of scholars would just essentially ignore female offending entirely. And I honestly think that that is sort of a function of sexism in a way. Perhaps it was more of a benevolent type of sexism of, oh, 
you know, these poor women must have been misguided, dainty creatures. They could not have possibly intended to commit these types of crimes. So yeah, I, I was really interested in the disparities, uh, gender disparities, and how women, particularly female uh, killers or extreme killers like serial killers, are perceived by the courts and by the media versus their male counterparts. Let's start with numbers. Like, How common are female killers in comparison to male killers? So about 90% of all homicide offenders, regardless of the number of victims, are male. So it's a 10 to 1 ratio for offending. It's also much higher for victimization. So 75% of homicides in general are men killing other men. A lot of times true crime as a genre, I think, focuses a lot on female victims of crime or female victims of homicide. And while they are, of course, important, they are by far not the majority of victims Mm-hmm. or, of course, offenders. When you start talking about serial homicide, which, depending on who you ask, is defined as three or more victims killed with some sort of cooling-off period between incidents, you're looking at more like 94% of serial killers in the United States since, like, the 1970s have been male. So there's overwhelming majority of serial killers are male, That doesn't say that there's not female serial killers. It's just that they're quite a rare breed in comparison. Wow, that's so interesting. You know, I I had read something about um, it taking twice as long to catch a a female serial killer as opposed to a male. So we're obviously, say what you will, very good at it. We're better at it. We are better at it. It's not a contest, but if it were... Um, we do it better and in heels. We do it backwards and in heels. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then my question to you would be, why are there less women serial killers, do we think? Unfortunately, I don't have a great answer for that. While it has been a longstanding sort of fact in criminology that men are more likely to commit crime in general, especially violent crime, especially homicide, why particularly that is, is much more open for debate. So if, if you knew the answer to that, I'm sure you could very easily go get your PhD and write a very famous book and, you know, become a very famous scholar if, if you knew that off the top of your head. But most likely it has to do with a complex constellation of factors, genetic, biological factors, as well as socialization, more cultural factors like our social norms, gender roles, that kind of thing. Why most serial killers and most homicide offenders generally tend to be male, I I wish I knew exactly why, but I I don't. When you meet someone, do you think Mm -hmm. you could tell if they were a killer? (laughs) Ah, I don't usually meet a lot of people that I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this person's a murderer, but... uh, I know that puts you on the spot. Probably not. I I think if they're they're any good at it, I would say probably not. Ooh, that's scarier. That's, That's a scarier answer. I was hoping... I could take you along with us just to like interview prospective maybe dates or whoever so that I could. Yeah, yeah. no, unfortunately, I think that if if they are at all good at it, I mean, some some serial killers do give off real creepy vibes. Others are like very charming boy next door kind of situation. So it would be pretty hard to tell. This does sound like Carrie's hinge dates. A little bit of each. <laughs> right, Carrie? <laughs> One thousand percent. And it's never the person you suspect. It's never the person you suspect. Exactly. If we were to generalize, Emma, Mm -hmm. do women have a go-to killing method? 
Yeah, so women tend to be a little bit more hands-off than men in general. So guns or firearms are the weapon of choice both for men and women in homicide in general as well as for serial killing. But men are disproportionately likely to use other types of weapons in addition to firearms. So stabbing, bludgeoning, strangling, that sort of a thing. Women tend to be more from a distance. So things like poisoning, drowning, smothering, asphyxiation, drugs, so on and so forth. So they tend to have more cleaner, quote-unquote, type of killing method that's less in-your-face, personal, hand-to-hand kind of contact. A gentle touch, if you will. A motherly touch. A motherly touch. Yeah, so if you think of 10% of homicide offenders are women, yet they account for 40% of murders committed with poison or drowning, drugs, or asphyxiation. So they they disproportionately account for a lot of those types of homicide. Gotcha. When you started, you know, I mean, obviously, Seinfeld, I'm probably not yielding a lot of nightmares, but when you started, was there a period in which you had more nightmares than before while you were sort of diving into this research and figuring out, you know, means of killing and things like that? So I wish I could say yes, because I think that would make me sound like a normal person. But no, I have never had any kind of nightmares about this sort of stuff. Perhaps it's because if you if you actually research it, you realize how truly rare these types of events are. So while they are sensationalized in the media and they are interesting cases, for sure, the the chances of it happening to you are so remote that, you know, it's kind of like being worried about getting struck by lightning or being in a shark attack like okay these sorts of things happen but I'm still afraid of getting in a shark attack I'm going to be honest with you I know it's rare but I want to be very clear I've not had nightmares in doing this research as well I was just curious if oh yeah yeah. so you're not alone I will say you're not alone okay well that's good yeah birds (laughs) of a feather here (laughs) yeah yeah so in a past couple episodes we've covered a couple of different female killers you know it's like Mm -hmm. we have the wife who wanted out of her marriage, Melanie McGuire. We have women who were after insurance checks or money. We have revenge killings, Pulan Devi. And we have a woman who killed to get the, what they want, namely the story of Lisa Montgomery. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty wide range of sort of means and reasons and motives. Um, mm-hmm. Can you break down some of the archetypes? Mm-hmm. You know, I think we all know sort of the archetype of a black widow, right? Mm-hmm. Would you mind defining what that stereotype of the black widow is? Oh, yeah, sure. So a black widow is um, typically a serial predator, most often a woman, who kills her husband's dating partners, usually for insurance money. So they sort of attract a guy, marry him, take out a large life insurance policy, and then kill him, collect the policy, and then start again. So the most famous example of this would be Belle Gunnis, who killed at least around 15 people, maybe more, and then faked her own death. So we're not really sure exactly the extent of her killing spree, but she killed multiple husbands. And you you mentioned uh, one of your cases, Betty Newmar, who's a quintessential black widow as well. Once you you if you know someone who has a lot of spouses who have mysteriously died, it's <laughs> it's not usually a great sign. Yeah. So you know Betty Newmar's case, yes. Yes. So do you think she killed all five? I mean, I don't know how familiar we just covered it, so it's obviously in our sort of rearview mirror. Objects are closer than they appear. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the case well enough or the evidence well enough to say, 
Um, I think that the the more dead husbands you have, the less likely it is that it is a coincidence. Yeah, she had five. Yeah, that seems a bit <laughs> unlikely to have happened over that time. Or she's really unlucky. Really, or really super unlucky. unlucky. That's possible, you know, but that seems a little bit unlikely for her to have no relationship or role in that. So the Black Widow is probably the most famous uh, type. Another really common type would be Angels of Death. And Angels of Death can be both male and female. It's just women are more disproportionately likely to fall into that category. So a lot of male serial killers do not fall into this category, whereas a, a good number of female serial killers, although rarer, do. So Angels of Death typically operate in a healthcare setting, like a nursing home or a hospital, and they target their patients. In some cases, it's like um, a god complex or a hero complex. Uh, so someone like Janine Jones in Texas, she would actively administer drugs to the infants in her care to induce uh, seizures or a heart attack or something like that, and then she would try to save them. Um, and sometimes she was successful, and then she got to be the hero who saved this baby, you know. In other cases of angels of death, they claim that they are sort of mercy killings. Often they are of the elderly who are maybe in a nursing home kind of situation. At the end of the day, though, uh, angels of death typically are all about power and control to make that decision for someone else over someone else's life and how they justify it to others kind of is up to them. But that is a, a common sort of stereotypical female crime. Are there other sort of categories um, that maybe in your research you would find that you could sort of like put these female killers in? Yeah, so a good portion of female killers commit intimate partner homicide where they kill their husband or dating partner. Almost always in those cases, and in the majority of those cases, that is prompted by a history of physical, sexual, and intense psychological torment by their partner. That kind of culminates, so that's often called um, intimate partner terrorism, to differentiate it from more minor forms of domestic violence. Following a long-term history of that, uh, there might be a violent altercation in which then the wife slash girlfriend kills her partner in self-defense protection. So that's a, a fairly common type of homicide that women uh, perpetrate. Um, yeah, in a few of the cases that we've covered, our killers um, have committed really gruesome crimes, but then we, we reveal that they had a really long, dark history of being abused by someone. Maybe it was a husband, maybe abused as a child from someone mm -hmm. they trusted. Obviously, we don't feel like this past trauma excuses or absolves them, right, of the crimes, but it does make me wonder, do you see that same story of trauma playing out in other killers' personal histories? Certainly. For You mean other female killers or male killers as well? Yeah, I guess I'd be interested in both, but specifically, is that that is a pattern that you're seeing a lot? Yes, I would we say We so. find out later that, that there's been a history there? Uh, certainly for female serial killers, yes. Particularly those that operate with partners. Oftentimes they are operating with a male partner who kind of is the quote-unquote dominant partner who's sort of motivated to commit the killings and uh, she's sort of dragged along as a participant of those. The other problem that's kind of unique with female offenders is that in a lot of cases it is very well documented that there was a history of abuse. 
in other cases, there it's a much more gray area where the uh, female offender tries to make herself more sympathetic by stretching the truth a little bit here or there or kind of presenting herself as a victim, either of her partner or um, as a childhood victim, so on and so forth. And so the line between, well, did they really have this horrible history of abuse or are they just saying that now in court to have a mitigated sentence, we don't know. That's so that's so tough because there's no way to know the truth in a lot of ways, right? Right. So I think a good example of this would be the, the Canadian killer Carla Homolka. So her and her boyfriend and husband, Paul Bernardo, killed three young women in the early 1990s in, in Canada. She grew up in a pretty middle, upper middle class family, very happy family life. She did not have that typical, you know, sort of Eileen Warnos um, childhood of horrors, right? She actually helped her boyfriend assault and then accidentally kill her own little sister and then helped him abduct and torture, rape and murder two other young women, right? She did not have any of this kind of childhood trauma. Now, do I think that he most likely abused her in some fashion? I think it's probably highly likely given the type of person that he was. He was a violent person. He had been a serial rapist before he ever met her. I, I, would, I would imagine that he did assault her um, physically, emotionally, so on and so forth. But she was also very active in, uh, after they were arrested, in presenting herself as a victim. Oh, I, I'm his ultimate victim, that he made me do these things. I, I'm a battered woman. So she would sort of look up things about battered women syndrome to try to portray herself as the victim. It later came out in court that they had tapes of some of the tortured murders that they played in Canadian court where you can actually hear her laughing uh, while a little girl is screaming and being tortured, right? And you can hear her playing more of an active role than she ever let on. So as a result of that, uh, she kind of got what they called a sweetheart plea deal to testify against him. So she's out now. She lives her, her regular life. She served 12 years. He has life in prison. That is a case where, do I think that she was abused by her husband? Probably. Do I think that that in any way provides context for why she engaged in the behavior that she did? Probably not. Not in the same way as the, some of the cases that you are talking about, like the, the bandit queen having this sort of childhood of horrors. I think that plays much more into the development and motivation of a killer than in the case of someone like Carla Homolka. Wow. Whoa. Whoa. So it can Quinn, be a little Quinn bit of like... a correlation, not a causation necessarily, it sounds like. That's... Oh, for sure. Wow. Yeah. And male serial killers often have horrible childhood experiences as well, right? It's not exclusively for women. But most of the time, I would say, if you investigate the childhood of a female serial killer, you're probably going to find some pretty bad stuff there. Whew. Well, I think after that, Emma, we're going to take a quick breather and we'll be okay. right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back. And we're back. <laughs> Did you like that? I don't know. That was a uh, movie magic. Well, now that we're starting to get a better sense of the who, the what, how, and why, and the when, when it comes to murderesses, let's talk about how they are seen by society. You, you mentioned the media. Are there any trends with how the media speaks about female killers? There's sort of two theories about how women who commit crime are portrayed, right? And one is this idea of benevolent sexism. So sexism can come in two different forms, right? A hostile sexism is, oh, you're a woman, you're bad at driving, right? It's something in your face and it's obnoxious. Mm -hmm. Benevolent sexism is, let me hold that door open for you because you're a woman and you're so weak, but I'm trying to help you. So benevolent sexism is a case where you're trying to be nice to women, but in doing so, you're treating them different than men on the basis of gender. In the case of benevolent sexism, applying that to the media, oftentimes women are viewed as somehow less culpable for their actions. Oh, she must be mentally ill. She must have had a childhood of horrors. She must be suffering from battered woman syndrome. She's so dainty. She couldn't possibly have done that. And for many years, serial killers in particular were perceived as being exclusively male. And all female serial killers were actually deemed by the FBI up until the mid-1990s as compliant victims, quote-unquote. Which is crazy, kind of, right? <laughs> That's nuts! So you have that sort of line of research on benevolent sexism that is suggesting that um, society, courts, the media are treating women as less culpable for their crimes based on their gender. On the other hand, you have what's called the evil woman hypothesis, which is if a woman commits a crime that goes against gender roles or acts in a way that goes against her gender roles, she's actually punished more harshly. She's punished essentially both for the crime itself and for the the norm violation. So you see that in cases, particularly when a woman, for example, kills a child. Um, Women are supposed to be maternal. They're supposed to be mothers. They're supposed to protect children. Myra Hindley from the Morshead murders back in the 60s in England was largely reviled by the British public and considered to be, quote-unquote, worse or more evil than her partner, Ian Brady, even though he took a more active role in coming up with the murders and perpetrating them. But she was hated more because she was a woman and she helped kill children. It's like, yeah, men kill children. Uh, what do we, we? Of course they will, right? Like, but if women kill children, it is a, a norm violation. The Myra Henley murders, I, you know, I looked up that case and it was so interesting. I just, 
to what you're saying, I think is so true. It's like either you are this like temptress, evil, maniacal murderer, or you're a victim. And frankly, like, can't women just be bad people too? There's got to be middle ground in describing these perpetrators. And it seems like in the media and the courts, there just isn't. Yeah, exactly. I Unfortunately, I think that women, you know, can act badly and do terrible things just because ideally, hopefully, we are moving more towards equality in that. Right. Some of my work suggests maybe not. So one study that I did looked at comparing serial killers who operated as teams, so two, two people working together, and you kind of use the partners as controls for each other because they've committed the exact same offense, right? And what I found was that men were 140% more likely to be sentenced to a really harsh sentence than women for the exact same crime among this sample of serial killers. One of our cases uh, that we covered was about uh, Lisa Montgomery, and it was a story about a woman who performed a fetal abduction. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the to-be mother died. And the woman had a very serious history of abuse in her life, you know, abused from a young age by her mother and her boyfriends and really crazy abuse. Mm. She was given the death penalty. Right. And Carrie and I were like, it's just, you know, you don't want to, again, excuse uh, the crime by any means, but it felt like such a bizarre time to to give somebody the death penalty. And it just didn't sit right with us. And we were kind of talking about the sexism. And it seems like in this case, it, it did what you were just saying. It did not work in her favor that she was a woman. Yeah. C-section homicides like that are more common among women. Typically, if they have mental illness or have sort of been convincing people that they're pregnant and now need to produce a child to prove it. But I think it goes to the the point that we were talking about earlier that committing a C-section homicide kind of fundamentally goes against this idea of maternity in, in a way that's pretty gruesome as well. It's also, it's not as much of a hands-off kind of killing method. Cutting a child out of someone's womb is inherently using, you know, like a knife. It's, it's more bloody. It's more hands-on. It's more masculine. It's a less feminine way, quote-unquote, to, to kill. And what was the phrase you said before? It was you're, you're tried for the crime but also for breaking norms. Is that what mm-hmm. you said? In some cases. And in other cases, like the Carla Homolka case I just mentioned, you clearly see benevolent sexism coming in and kind of saving the day for her and getting her out of jail, literally, even though it seems that she had a much more active role and should have been held more culpable for her part in the crimes. Right. When we were doing the Lisa Montgomery case, I found a statistic that was women were, like, the leading cause of death for pregnant and postpartum women is homicide. Yeah, so pregnancy is is definitely a risk factor for homicide. One theory of violence against women is this idea of male proprietariness theory. It's an evolutionary theory. And basically that when a woman is pregnant with a man's child, she essentially is holding his genetic future in her hands. And she suddenly has a lot more control over the situation. So men uh, may be more likely to retaliate against women who try to leave them with their child or if she's potentially carrying another man's child in like a situation of cuckolding, 
he may retaliate against her in order to promote his own genetic lineage. So while this is like a more evolutionary theory, you can see why pregnancy would kind of tip the scales a little bit more in a woman's favor and thus provoke a sort of violent response from a man. Wow. Do you see Quinn's in my faces right now? Well, I we gotta tell like... you, Emma, anything that you bring up, all this evolutionary stuff just fascinates me. I had also heard that women's medical diagnoses were different as well. Is that true? Yeah, up until quite recently, there was a personality disorder called histrionic personality disorder. So most uh, homicide or violent crime offenders are diagnosed with what's called antisocial personality disorder, which is characterized by, you know, anger issues, a history of violent behavior, so on and so forth. Female offenders, on the other hand, are much more likely to be, previously, were more likely to be diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder, which is this idea of hysteria, or that they're just overly emotional. This, uh, you know, the word hysteria comes from the idea of the wandering uterus, right? <laughs> um, and histrionic personality disorder was essentially a gendered diagnosis. So if you think of something like anxiety or post-traumatic stress, men and women can both be diagnosed with these. But histrionic personality disorder was almost exclusively attributed to women. And so they've done some studies where they had little case vignettes where they changed the gender of the name of the person with the exact same history. And they asked uh, practitioners to diagnose the, the person. Almost always, if it was a male name, the person was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. If it was a female-sounding name, about half of the time they were actually diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder. So seen as just being hysterical, over-the-top emotional, needy. Whoa. Fortunately, in the, the, the fifth edition of the DSM, they actually got rid of it, acknowledging that it was a problematic diagnosis. So progress, yeah. <laughs> Do you think yeah. that would fall under the benevolent sexism with the strong wrists or with the, uh, what was the other one? Evil woman. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it would definitely fall under the more benevolent sexism of... When you say antisocial personality disorder, it's clearly not uh, ambiguous as to what you think of that person. It's a very negative connotation, whereas histrionic personality disorder could be more like, oh, she was just so hysterical she did this, rather than taking culpability for it. She just really needed to get that uterus uh, and put a leash on it. Exactly. That, that wandering ding, uterus. Ding, dong, wandering uterus. That sounds like, I mean, never Listen, heard that. Gotta chain that down. That sounds like it would hurt. A wandering uterus? <laughs> My God, that sounds painful as hell. Um, I think way I, back in the day, they used to ha- have sex with supposedly histrionic women as a treatment. So there, well, there you have that. Isn't that, but like with, well, that's well, like in the 1800s, right? That mm-hmm. was like hysterical. Yeah, yeah. Not, recently. The, not, not re- recently. Not recently. <laughs> yeah, women's science, man. We really uh, gotta, gotta work on Really it. haven't gotten our fair shake, have we? This is no. such a sidebar and it's not important, but I just have to tell you because it's an interesting fact. Did you know when the female clitoris was first mapped on a human body? No, I don't. 1998. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that insane? Sorry. Okay, let's turn to another question that I've been dying to ask. You've been dying to ask, Quinn? Pun intended. <laughs> I remember reading something about... Um, the idea that even in murdering, women are gatherers and men are hunters. 
So the idea being women draw people into their lives and then by circumstance you're already part of her life, you would become the victim versus a man, you're more likely to see more of that hunter behavior, right? Yeah, I would say so. Generally speaking, that kind of goes to the victim-offender relationship again, that women are more likely to target people they already have a close association with. Mm-hmm. But most, you know, there there is this kind of, in true crime, we talk a lot about, like, stranger danger, right? Because a lot of serial killers, particularly male serial killers, attack strangers. That's not necessarily super common in homicide in general. So most homicides, regardless of the gender of the perpetrator or the victim, are between two people who know each other in some kind of capacity. And that kind of makes sense, right? For you to get that mad at or upset at a situation that you feel the need to use lethal force probably has to be someone who knows how to, you know, push your buttons, right? Oh, my God. So be afraid of everyone is what I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> That's the take. I'm going to be afraid I, of Quinn. <laughs> I, study, I study a lot of um, – Mass shootings is another one of my areas of focus, and wow, uh, a lot of my students are not happy when I tell them, you know, you don't have to be worried about walking around in public. If you're going to die in a mass shooting, it's because your husband or your father is going to kill you and your children or your siblings. Wow. That, How do they feel? Much How, what's like, the response? Do you get a good review uh, as a, do you get a good rate your professor review for that information? <laughs> <laughs> they think it's very interesting. Yeah. Sometimes I drop these gems when I'm teaching like statistics, so they like that because it's a break from <laughs> <Right>. statistics. <laughs> well, you should get a uh, a job at Hallmark because that would make a really <laughs> lovely uh, card, I think. Greeting card. Oh, yes. you should totally. You have a yeah. I I think you have a side career going on right now, but I have a lucrative future. You I have a very sure. lucrative. I mean, I'd I'd buy the hell out of those cards. Um, I'm curious in your research, and if this is off base, please feel free to not answer, but. Have you met many female murderers? Like in your research, do you is that is there sort of a practical um, element to it where you would interview or talk? With no, them? so I I personally have not. I think those types of interviews that you're referring to were very common back in the the seventies and the eighties, going into the nineties, particularly mm-hmm. when people at the the BSU, the Behavioral Sciences Unit at the FBI, were sort of doing that kind of seminal work that you see dramatized in the show Mindhunter, for example. My PhD mentor, James Allen Fox, has done some of those in his career. But generally speaking, getting access ethically to prisoners and getting their consent, so on and so forth, is somewhat difficult. And particularly in the cases of extreme, more like serial homicide or mass homicide, the the information that you're going to get from a serial killer is not super helpful because you know they're going to lie. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about unreliable interviewees. (laughs) You want to try to minimize the lying as much as possible, so you're sort of playing a game. Generally, also, given that most offenders are male, being a, a female academic probably would not go over so great. Mm. I would probably recommend a male colleague of mine do those interviews. Right. I would be interested in it, but my, my work is much more statistical and looking at patterns and trends rather than delving into individual case studies. Is there anything that's ever happened in your research coming across all these different stories that has really shocked and surprised you? Because we're talking a lot about formulas, right? And like, we see this, we see this. What is something that you've ever seen and gone, what? I would say a lot of times with, with serial cases, what shocks me is how dumb some of the offenders are and how they get caught, um, and it's quite hilarious. So the one that comes to mind is Dennis Nilsson 
in the UK. Have you heard of this case? No, but he's, just that he's basically out of your the mouth, American Jeffrey it. Dahmer. We gotta cover yeah, it now. You gotta cover it. Very fascinating case, but he would kill men and he had sex with some of their corpses, not all. And he would keep them as sort of like dolls that he would sleep with or watch TV with. He was very lonely. Anyway. Obviously, um, he was pretty lonely. I can't imagine his, he had a he, lot of he, friends around. <laughs> he had two different apartments. The first apartment he lived in was, or a flat, actually had a private garden attached to it where he had a little shed. And he was actually able to store a lot of bodies there after they started to smell beneath his floorboards. So that actually really facilitated him being able to get away with it for so long. And then he would, uh, I think he had two or three large bonfires where he would burn the body parts with tires and sticks of deodorant. And then the neighborhood children would come and watch. And, you know, that's a whole other level of weird. But when he moved to his 23 Cranley Gardens apartment, he was in like an attic apartment. So he no longer had that access to a garden. So, you know, it quickly fills up your floorboards, right? So... He decided the best way to dispose of the bodies was to basically boil the flesh off of the bones like piecemeal and flush it down the toilet. Now, what I can tell you is that that is a really bad idea because it creates an industrial clog that will clog the the plumbing for the entire apartment building. Oh, my God. And then the plumber has to come out and find little bits of human flesh and calls the cops on you. I think that was one where I was like, Really? That's you thought that was a good idea? Like what? You know, Emma, Whoa. I'm not gonna be able to go to one of those public restrooms and look at those signs above the toilet the same ever again. The ones that say <laughs> only flush toilet paper. I'm gonna really look at those differently from here yeah, on. Yeah, they were they were designed exclusively for Dennis Nilsson. They're like, no human flesh here, please. Yeah. That I mean, that was that's that was one I was like, come on, Des, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? What are you doing? Yeah. Whoa. Well, thank you so, so much for uh, spending the afternoon here with us, Emma. We really, really appreciate your insights and your time. This has been so fabulous, and we could, frankly, do it for hours. When we're in your neighborhood, we're going to come and take you out so we can do all of the fun jokes that don't make the podcast. Yeah, for sure. Hit me up. Hit me up. Next time you're in Tallahassee, Florida. <laughs> You'll be the first to Destination. Know. You'll be the first to know. If Quinn and I are in Tallahassee, Florida, you're the first to know. Perfect. And if you're in Perfect. New York, you let us know. That seems more likely. <laughs> well, thank you, Emma. You've been such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, guys, for the opportunity. Thanks, Emma. Wow, that was fascinating. It was fascinating and fun. It was all my favorite F words. Yeah, uh, what a career Emma's made for herself, and very cool to get to uh, talk to somebody this well-versed in something that we are very passionate about, but certainly uh, know very little about, one might say, after talking to her. I was like, wow, I'm learning a lot. I feel like I should be paying Florida State for taking one of her classes, right? What I loved about it, too, is getting the actual statistics. She has such data to back her claims where I think with you and I, we're kind of like, it's a lot of feeling. It's a lot of feeling. It's a lot of feeling. And it's good to have some validation in numbers. Yeah. And I didn't know that story about Dennis Nilsson and those decisions made. Wow. 
No, but I also loved when she said, yeah, I have, you know, the gallows humor. I really would like to go pick her brain more over drinks. And I want to hear some more of those jokes that she's, that her fiance has to tell her to stop saying. I mean, how long is a bus ride to Tallahassee from here? Let's go get the tickets. Let's go take a bus ride. Let's not fly there. Let's go along. I think that's what you and I want is just a 20 hour bus ride between the two of us. But maybe to tide us over in the meantime, didn't she write a book? Oh my gosh. Yes. If you'd like to read more from Emma Friedel, you can find the fifth edition of her book, Extreme Killing, on Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy your books. And next week, we'll be back with another gruesome crime. We'll see you then. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins and Julie Magruder. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Carrie Ipema and Quinlan Posner. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our researcher is Emma Frederick. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.